You're listening to the Corbett Report. Welcome, friends. James Corbett here, CorbettReport.com. Today is the 24th of September, 2014, and today we are talking on the line with Dr. Graeme McQueen, who I hope some of the more attentive Corbett Report viewers will remember from a video that report that was issued via GRTV, but available on CorbettReport.com two years ago, talking about 9-11, the next step. And at that time, we were introduced to Dr. Gray McQueen, who, of course, presented at the 9-11 Revisited Conference in Kuala Lumpur, Malaysia, with myself back in 2012. And he is, uh, well, he... Of course, he was a founding director of the Center for Peace Studies at McMaster University, a place where he also taught for 30 years. Uh, He is co-editor of the Journal of 9-11 Studies with the esteemed Kevin Ryan. And, uh, of course, that is at journalof911studies.com. I believe I... No, I think I did get that right. Journalof911studies.com. And he is the author of a brand new, highly recommended by myself book, The 2001 Anthrax Deception the case for a domestic conspiracy. Dr. Gray McQueen, thank you so much for taking the time to talk with us today. Oh, you're welcome, James. Thanks for having me on. Excellent. Well, it is good to talk to you once again. As I say, we did get acquainted in Kuala Lumpur, so I do have uh, that bit of uh, personal acquaintance with you, and I I do feel that that connection. So I, I was very excited to receive this book. But having said that, and I mean this in no no way is a slight to yourself or to academia in general, but when I opened this book, I don't think I was expecting the book that I actually ended up reading, which is to say this was something of an academic scholarly page turner. And by that, I, I, I mean to compliment you on the lucidity and clarity of your writing and the, the way that you present the evidence in this book. Obviously, as the title would indicate, this is about the 2001 anthrax attacks in the United States. It is about the case for a domestic conspiracy, but not the lone nut Bruce Ivins that the FBI ultimately concluded uh, was responsible for the attacks, a different type of domestic conspiracy, which we will begin to articulate. But I just want to to really commend you for the uh, the way that you put this together, the the way that it's written. It's very compelling. Uh, it's, it's, as I say, an academic page termer. And, uh, and the way that the evidence is laid out is, uh, is extremely precise and concise. So my hat's off to you for being able to accomplish that. Thank you, James. Um, those positive comments from you mean a lot to me. Um, the shows you've done have also been important to me, and I've listened to a lot of them. Um, I guess as far as a book goes, it's not all that big a book, but I think I pack a fair bit in it. I really don't like BS, to be honest, whether it's academic BS or any other kind of BS. I wanted to write a book that was short and to the point. It's not a comprehensive account of the anthrax attacks. It just has a few points that I wanted to try and give evidence for. And uh, and one of the points obviously has to do with the linking of the anthrax attacks to the 9-11 attacks to the point where I really think we should begin talking about uh, talking about them together. We might call it the 9-11 anthrax operation or we might call it the, I don't know, the uh, opera- the strategy of tension 2001. You know, there are a variety of things we can call it, but we must put back together what has been, what have been separated by the FBI, and that is these two sets of attacks. Well, I think you're exactly right about that, because it does seem from our perspective today that 9-11 was an event that took place on a singular day, but it is difficult for even those of us who did live through those events in that time period to recall how 9-11 was obviously an ongoing phenomenon that stretched out over those weeks and months in the final, in the winding uh, down days of, of 2001, to the extent that everyone was wondering about the next attack. When was the next attack coming? What form would the next attack take? And that was something that was speculated on to no degree of, uh, of or with much degree of uh, speculation, hype, and, and uh, seemingly never-ending uh, rhetoric uh, from the mm-hmm. mainstream media. And it, it, this book does a remarkably good job of recapturing that time frame with extensive documentation to a lot of the newspaper stories and and uh, and mentions in the media that were happening around that time, specifically regarding a the, the possibility of a biological attack. And 
lots of these references, as you as you put into the uh, as you document very thoroughly, as I say in this book, took place in September of two thousand one before. According to the FBI, anyone knew that an anthrax attack had taken place other than the perpetrators of the anthrax attacks. So let's talk a little bit about that context of the uh, of September 2001 and the and how this uh, this meme of, as you as you uh, point out in one of the chapters, the unthinkable suddenly started to become very thinkable. Yeah, well, it's one of the giveaways, um, really, for these attacks, which is why I had a separate chapter on foreknowledge of the attacks. I guess I call it advanced knowledge, but uh, whatever you call it, the basic fact here is that the newspapers, um, and not just newspapers, other media were filled with references to not just the danger of coming attacks, I'm talking about the period right after 9-11, but quite specifically the dangers of biological and chemical attacks. And they sometimes got quite specific. I mean, this is during September. They're talking about a run on Cipro, which is the antibiotic people were taking at the time uh, for anthrax. That run on Cipro happened well before there was any public knowledge of the anthrax attacks. It was reported in the New York Times. The Washington Post was talking about people begging for people uh, wanting a vaccine for anthrax. Um, there were all kinds of references, um, quite specific. Some of them talking about the fact that, you know, uh, for example, on September 17th in the Washington Post, there was an article about, gee, you know, it would be really terrible if, if somebody were to, to attack with anthrax because, you know, people would get the disease, but it wouldn't be diagnosed right away. So it would be this covert, horrible thing. And on the exact day that that showed up in the Washington Post, namely September 17th, possibly the day after, September 18th, actual letters with anthrax spores were being put in the mail. And just as the guy had predicted, people started to get anthrax, and they didn't initially diagnose it because people didn't know what it was. They had so-called flu-like symptoms. And as we look into this advanced knowledge thing, we find that, um, you know, Mr. Bush, the president, so-called, I don't like to call him the president because I don't believe he was ever elected. And, uh, and I think it's actually an insult to the American population to refer to this pretender as the president. But in any case, a man occupying the White House, George W. Bush, was put on this antibiotic, Cipro, on 9-11, and so was the vice president, Mr. Cheney. And, and there are a whole set of quite specific uh, incidents that are discussed in that advanced knowledge chapter that are fishy in the extreme. Now, at the time, you know, people seemed to accept it. Oh, well, this was, this was just a worry. It was just a threat. We won't call it advanced knowledge because, of course, it, it doesn't become clear that it's advanced knowledge until the attacks become known. And also there was this idea going around that, well, you know, this is coming from our intelligence agencies and they have reason to believe that such attacks might happen. This is evidence-based. You know, we should be grateful for these warnings. But we can see now in retrospect that it wasn't based on good intelligence, that the intelligence reports were talking about al-Qaeda and Iraq and so on, but these attacks didn't come from al-Qaeda and Iraq. Al-Qaeda didn't have anthrax spores. Iraq didn't have anthrax spores. They hadn't, Iraq hadn't had anthrax in its possession for years, and al-Qaeda, as far as we know, never had it. There was no intelligence for this. And then, so that's why, looking back in retrospect, now we can see things that wouldn't have been clear to people at the time. It was fraud. And the advanced knowledge indicates that there was quite a large body of people that knew these attacks were in fact happening. No one, you know. Absolutely. It's an exceptionally important part of the story. But just to make sure that we all are on the same page when it comes to the story itself, I suppose we've jumped into the middle of the conversation without establishing the, the anthrax attacks themselves, which is kind of mind-boggling that we have to do. But I believe we do have to do it because this is the forgotten terrorist attack of 2001 uh, to a large extent because it 
obviously didn't quite play out the way that the perpetrators wanted, a conclusion that you come to at the end of the book, and we'll obviously touch on that later. But uh, but let's refresh people's memory about this, this uh, incident, because again, if you did not directly live through it or remember living through it, if for the young people in the audience or for those who have lived through it and uh, have forgotten about the details, let's just talk a little bit about these letters and uh, when and how they were being sent and who was receiving them. Right. Good point. Um, part of this is na- a natural forgetting process, but part of it is that the agencies involved, especially the FBI, have been sort of sweeping these attacks down the memory hall for some years because it's very inconvenient um, to have people remembering them because, you know, they did the, the narrative fell apart quite quickly in a way that the 9-11 narrative didn't. And, um, and it threatens to drag down with it the 9-11 narrative and, frankly, many other sub-narratives in the War on Terror. So, a brief summary. Around September 17th or 18th, in other words, about a week after the 9-11 attacks, uh, envelopes containing uh, notes, that is a little bit of text, as well as spores of the bacteria, very uh, lethal bacteria, anthrax, were put in the mail. And the first wave of them went out to news agencies. Later on, we had some with an even more refined product, an even more lethal product, being sent to two U.S. senators. And um, these attacks, if we can call them that, uh, began in September, and people... Uh, got sick into November. October was the hottest month for it. It was the time of greatest, probably, anxiety in the United States. The number of casualties was small, of course, compared to the 9-11 attacks, but it's not the kind of thing we would normally forget. Um, There were five people who died, who were acknowledged to have died from anthrax. All of them died from the inhalation form of the disease, which is the most lethal. And there are conventionally said to have been about 22 people who uh, were injured, although some people think the the true figure is much higher than that. And uh, when we talk about being injured from anthrax, we don't just mean, oh, well, they came down with a flu-like thing, but fortunately it was treated with antibiotics and they recovered and everything's fine. Um, You don't always recover from anthrax. And the reason is that I mean, it's not the spores themselves that cause you to feel horrible. It's uh, the toxins released once the spores lodge, especially in this case in the lungs, and begin to wake up, so to speak, and do their thing. And these toxins can wreak havoc on the internal organs of the body, which may never recover. So, um, in any case, that's that's what happened, and people were dying um, into November 2001. This was a phenomenon of the fall of 2001. And one of the things, well, a couple of things that are worth remembering about these. First of all, these were not natural anthrax spores. They weren't taken out of uh, the soil or something. They were clearly prepared and treated in particular ways to make them more lethal. Now, the FBI has tried to diminish this fact, but I think the evidence is overwhelming. And that means that it was weaponized anthrax, and that means that it was a so-called WMD. This was somebody unleashing a weapon of mass destruction. So this is the traditional horror. This is the fear, you know, that somebody's going to use WMD in the United States. Well, we have to remember, it happened, okay? It's not just a fear. It happened. Somebody used and they, they let loose a weapon of mass destruction in the United States, both against um, innocent civilians and against uh, members of Congress. So this is quite astonishing. How could we forget such a thing? The other thing to remember uh, from that period is that uh, these anthrax attacks joined with the earlier 9-11 attacks to have both foreign policy effects and domestic policy effects. And I try to sketch that briefly, but, you know, with sufficient detail, I hope, in the book. So in terms of foreign policy, they supported the intention 
to invade both Afghanistan and Iraq because both Al-Qaeda and Iraq were blamed for these attacks in October of 2001. That's in terms of foreign policy. Domestically, they were very closely related to the Patriot Act, the so-called USA Patriot Act that was introduced to Congress in September and that was signed into law on October 26th. And I've tried to show this quite a close association between the anthrax attacks and the passage of the Patriot Act. And therefore, you know, they had a big effect on these very important events in history. So we mustn't forget them. And that's the gist. And let me uh, commend you again for that passage in which you do connect the uh, the Patriot Act's passage to the anthrax attacks, because again, I think it was remarkably uh, clear, and uh, and it certainly did support uh, uh, that connection, including, of course, the fact that uh, the two people in the Senate who had the most uh, possibility, at any rate, of, if not derailing, at least delaying the passage of the Patriot Act, Leahy and Daschle were both targeted in the anthrax attacks, which again is one of those major you know, pieces of, of the puzzle that's, uh, that is difficult to deal with uh, when we're talking about some sort of lone nut scenario, which of course brings us to the question of the perpetrator hypotheses, uh, hi hypotheses, which is of course the title of chapter five of your book. And I like the way that you open this chapter because I think it takes a, a slightly different tack on the question of who committed these, uh, these, these acts and, uh, and uh, it takes the conversation in a useful direction. So let's just quote from the beginning of that chapter. Chapter 5, Perpetrator Hypotheses. Who planned and carried out the anthrax attacks? In struggling with this question, we should not rush too quickly to the discussion of individuals, Hatfield, Ivans, and the like, persons proposed by the FBI as lone wolf perpetrators. A more useful approach is to sketch the possibilities in general terms and try to establish the actual historical movement of the investigation among them. Which possibilities were popular at particular moments? What arguments did e uh, and evidence were offered in favor of them? By what path did the FBI arrive at its current preferred solution? Only when this overview is complete will we be re uh, ready to examine the FBI's ultimate choice of Dr. Bruce Ivins as the anthrax killer. I think, again, I think this is a very useful way of breaking down this analysis, and you do so um, by first breaking the problem into four quadrants, uh, i.e. it could be a foreign individual or a foreign group or a domestic individual or a domestic group. So why don't we talk about those different possibilities and which one ultimately is supported by the evidence as being the most likely? Right. Um, thanks for starting us off that way. Uh, it took me a while in my own study of the anthrax attacks to arrive at this, um, this way of beginning to talk about perpetrators because, you know, we allow, we too often allow the context of these things to be set for us by whoever it may be, the mass media, the FBI, so on and so forth. They sort of establish the questions and we too often leap in and accept the way they've set it up and that's very dangerous, very dangerous. And so I, I could see that there were a lot of good people doing research on the anthrax attacks. I'm kind of Johnny-come-lately here. There were a lot of people ahead of me. But too often they would start talking right away about, well, did Stephen Hatfield do it? You know, did Bruce Ivins do it? And, and in that case, what you're really, if you're not careful, what you're accepting is the idea that this was done by a single person, uh, and that, you know, we, we must all begin discussing who that single person might have been and so on and so forth. But in fact, the FBI never established that it was a single person. There's tons of evidence that it wasn't a single person. So that's why I wanted to draw back a little bit from that usual way of going at it. So uh, to answer your question about the, uh, let's see if I can summarize this. When, the, and when it first became clear that anthrax was in play, um, there were various possibilities suggested. And I would say it first became, started to become known to the public on October 3rd when Robert Stevens was diagnosed as having inhalation anthrax. He was a photo editor in Florida. And then this was announced to the public, you know, and carried by a fair number of the media on October 4th. This is all 2001. And then Mr. Stevens died on October 5th. 
those are so that's the period in which people come to realize that there's anthrax around. Now, of course, at that point, it's still not clear that this was a weapon or that this was, you know, anybody was deliberately targeted. It could have been that he got the disease through natural methods. But in any case, um, all the options were open at that time. And you do find reference to the possibility of a, a single unbalanced individual because, in fact, there is a more or less steady stream of of nutty letters that come through the mail and that some go to mass media, some go to various other, you know, Congress and so on. And anthrax scares were by no means unknown before this. Usually those are by individuals. Um, and usually it's not real anthrax, by the way. They're usually just threats and hoaxes. Very seldom is it actually going to be anthrax. Not that easy to get hold of these spores. But uh, as October went on, and in fact, this, it didn't take very long for this to be established as the main hypothesis. People began worrying that this was the second punch in a one-two punch scenario. So 9-11 had been the first punch, and by that time it was assumed this was so-called Al-Qaeda uh, that had done it. And so people began to think that this, this was punch number two. It was likely Al-Qaeda also. And uh, a poll in mid-October found that about 60% of Americans accepted that, that Al-Qaeda was involved, either as the sole partner or in conjunction with somebody else. So that was the leading hypothesis. But also, uh, starting quite early in October, and then really come to prominent, coming to prominence in the middle of October, was the idea that Iraq was involved in this. And um, so this led to the somewhat more complex hypothesis that I refer to as the double perpetrator hypothesis. Um, the basic scenario is well known. It is that terrorist groups often have one or more state sponsors. And the state will support them, may supply them with weapons, and so on and so forth. Uh, okay, such things happen. So it began to be commonly thought that this is what was happening here. And the terrorists, so to speak, on the ground, who are actually writing the letters, the threat letters, and putting the spores in the envelopes and sealing them up, was Al-Qaeda. But, you know, it became pretty widely known that Al-Qaeda couldn't have prepared this sophisticated anthrax, especially the stuff sent to the senators. No way. So let's look around. Who has ever had anthrax? Well, at one time, Iraq was developing anthrax. And we don't like Iraq, and so they got to be number one possibility. So the idea is Iraq creates this sophisticated weaponized material, supplies it to Al-Qaeda, they send it around. And that becomes a very powerful hypothesis from the middle to the end of October 2001. And remember that the anthrax, you know, we often think of September 2001 as a crucial uh, time. It, it was. I mean, that's when the 9-11 attacks happened. But October 2001, in a way, are just as important. That's when the bombing of Afghanistan begins. That's when very overt preparation begins for attacking Iraq. That's when the Patriot Act is passed. That's when the NSA, as far as we know now, begins the mass spying on U.S. citizens. That's when the anthrax attacks happen. So as you said earlier, it's not just a matter of September. These, these events were drawn out over the fall. So anyway, that, that, that's the leading hypothesis up until the Patriot Act is signed into law in, on the 26th of October. And George Bush, when he, when he gives his little speech justifying the Patriot Act on, on, uh, on that day, he refers to 9-11 and he refers to the anthrax attacks. And his speech assumes they were done by the same group, or at least related group of extremist Muslims. But rapidly, after the Patriot Act is, the Act is passed, the narrative begins to crumble. And one of the reasons it begins to crumble is because of hard science. Um, those who look at the spores, it, it, it seems clear that some of the people who examined the anthrax spores had not been fully brought into this fraud. And they started to say, you know, I'm sorry, but this, this looks like an American product. This looks like it comes from our own domestic program, uh, not just American, in other words, but from U.S. military and intelligence labs. And uh, that really quite rapidly becomes accepted. 
And uh, for very specific reasons, we could get into later if you like. So by the end of the year, by the end of December 2001, all the frauds uh, meant to frame al-Qaeda in Iraq have, have crumbled. There, are, there is a group that continues to try and revive those theories from time to time over the next year. But the main consensus, and that includes the FBI, includes Homeland Security, includes the White House, is that somehow this has come from within our own bio, uh, biological uh, weapons program. And at that point, the FBI goes into damage control mode and tries to create these narratives of a lone nut, somehow uh, an eccentric, uh, dangerous, possibly mentally unbalanced individual in our system has done these attacks. And if that's true, of course, it tells us really nothing of significance about our institutions because you can never control for lone nuts. And we can all we can just sweep the thing into the memory hole and we can regret it and we can try and find the guy that did it and it ceases to be of political significance. So that's a brief rundown on the perpetrator. And of course one of the one of the main points of my book is to say the lone wolf or lone nut hypothesis does not work. It was clearly a group. And that group has clearly never been identified. They're still at large. And uh and I also give evidence that they um, ideologically, they're connected to neoconservatism, um, but they extend right up to the highest levels of the executive branch of government in the United States. I think that's quite clear. Well, I, I suppose once we've laid out the hypotheses, it's a question of looking at the evidence and seeing which uh, hypotheses, uh, which hypothesis actually stands up to that evidence. And I guess there are two branches of evidence that we could look at, and one of them would be the, the scientific forensic type of evidence, which again, you do, I think, a, a very good job of dealing with. I know it's a very complicated subject, and there are twists and turns in the story, and uh, there are things that have been said and then retracted and then re-retracted, and, and yes. lots of fights between various experts etc. So I know that that's become a bit of a, a, a confusing subject, and uh, I'm sure there's there's been a lot of people who have who have probably helped uh, uh, to uh, to sort that out over the the preceded preceding years. Um, yes. With regards to that, it, for anyone who has been following, especially especially over the last three or four years, I would say that uh, it's become quite obvious that the mo momentum has been. Quite, uh, quite very much against the FBI in the case that they have attempted to make. Uh, the, the scientific consensus is increasingly that there was gross mishandling of the case uh, from a scientific perspective. And there's, uh, again, a, a number of bodies and institutions and reports that have been issued to that effect. But one of the parts of this story that I was not really familiar with that you brought out in the book that I was fascinated by was the fact that apparently there was a, a 2003 civil case that was filed by the family of Robert Steven Stevenson, the first yes, victim of the attack. Stevens. Stevens, yeah. right. Yeah, the, yeah. First, uh, the first victim of the attacks, who, uh, and that case actually provoked the Department of Justice to issue... A, uh, a a a summary for no, a motion. Uh, what is the technical term for this? A uh, I don't remember. Yeah, <laughs> uh, <laughs> wanting to dismiss the case. Yeah, <laughs> whatever summary judgment or yes, something. Yes, yes, exactly. Yeah. And um, it, with the basically the case that they make directly contradicts and undermines the FBI's own case and uh, the types of details they attempt to include. That, that's a fascinating part of this story. So perhaps we can approach the the forensic evidence from from that side. Why don't you tell us a little bit about what the what the evidence actually indicates? about the capabilities of the the people who must have been working on this uh, the cultivation of these spores. Right. As you say, there's a lot of controversy, and this controversy uh, exists even within the Department of Justice in the U.S. Uh, and perhaps it's worth reminding people that I don't say that everyone in the Department of Justice and everybody in the FBI and everybody in the State Department, so on and so forth, are crooks and that they're all in on this and they're all rubbing their hands with glee trying to kill American citizens. No, I always, I assume that many people are professionals doing their job as well as they can and that some, in fact, are idealistic individuals who are really uh, outraged by what they see happening sometimes in their own agencies. And this creates certain problems for people who want to pull off major frauds because they can't assume everyone in their agency will go along with them. 
And I think that uh, the anthrax attack narrative came apart, um, partly because there was no consensus on these issues and they couldn't control the narrative. Now with the Stevens civil case, what you had was really two different parts of the Department of Justice in the U.S. contending with each other, going against each other. And I don't know initially if they did that consciously or whether they fell into it. It's hard to imagine they could have done it unconsciously. But in any case, you see, the, the FBI, I assume people know, the FBI is, is a part of the Department of Justice. It is an investigative agency of the Department of Justice. And the FBI is given power to investigate terrorist acts in the United States. So it took over with the anthrax attacks, just as it took over in the investigation of the 9-11 attacks. And when I say took over, I mean it's quite aggressively pushed aside uh, various police departments and so on that, that would have normally wanted to investigate something that happened on their turf. The FBI said, no, you have to get out of here, this is our thing, you know, we're taking over the crime scene, so on and so forth. So here's the FBI uh, conducting this criminal investigation. And they come up with the decision that Bruce Ivins was the so-called anthrax killer. And uh, first they name him, I don't know, a person of interest, something like this. Then the poor man dies, uh, probably because of the pressure put on him by the FBI, takes an overdose of Tylenol. I admit that I'm not 100% convinced that he wasn't murdered, but let's assume for the moment that he, uh, he did take his own life after being pressured by the FBI. Um, far from feeling regret, the FBI uh, seems to develop a certain joy at this and say that, you know, the fact that he committed suicide just shows his guilty conscience. So they proclaim him uh, that the case is closed. And I guess this is 2010, as I recall. And you can read the whole case against Ivans. It's on the Internet. Um, not a long document. I forget, maybe 90 pages or so. And there they have it. Um, this is the Amerithrax case, so-called, and it's all about Bruce Ivins and why they thought he did it. Well, I mean, I read it years ago, and I thought it's pathetic. Uh, I could hardly believe any investigative agency would consider this um, conclusive evidence of the man's guilt. To say that it's a circumstantial case is actually, uh, you know, uh, exaggerating its its worth. It's circumstantial, it's speculative, it's full of slander. In any case, so that's that's what the FBI does. So that's what one wing, if you like, of the Department of Justice is doing. Meanwhile, though, the family of Robert Stevens, the first man to die from anthrax, mounts a civil case um, and takes the U.S. government to court and asks for, I don't remember how many millions of dollars, a large sum of money, on the basis that, um, you see, by then, by the time they launched this case, it's, it's accepted that this was a domestic operation and that the spores came from inside the U.S. military-industrial complex. So the Stevens family says, well, you know, I'm sorry, but this is outrageous that the security should be so lax in these laboratories that somebody can go in there and either steal anthrax that's already been prepared or, you know, sit down and create their own anthrax, their own spores, and then take it out and kill Mr. Stevens and the other people. That's not acceptable. And so that's what they do, basically, is, uh, is work on that basis, that this shows... Um, in caution, it shows sloppiness, Negligence. it shows Sorry? Negligence. Negligence, that's the word. <laughs> anyway, so they, uh, they launched a case, and, well, who is it that in the Department of Justice that has the job of, of uh, taking them on, contending against them? Well, it's not the FBI, it's not the criminal division, it's not even the lawyers in the criminal division of the DOJ because this isn't a criminal case, it's a civil case. So it's a whole different set of lawyers in the DOJ uh, that, that have to deal with this. 
And um, if they were to accept the FBI's conclusion that Ivans did this, well, Ivans was, of course, in a U.S. military lab at USAMRID in Fort Detrick. And that would mean that the Stevens family's right. Um, you know, that he either took anthrax from there or that he prepared his own there. And their job is to argue against that. So they actually create a great deal of distance in their arguments between Bruce Ivans and the anthrax that was sent in the letters. They don't say outright, uh, we don't think Bruce Ivans did it, but the whole, their whole statement tends in that, very strongly in that direction. They say, look, you know, the stuff used in the envelopes was highly, was a highly prepared weapon. They call it a weapon, which the FBI, I mean, wanted to avoid. You know, it's not just naturally occurring anthrax. It had to be dried. It had to be prepared in all these ways. Um, the machinery, the equipment at USAMRID, where Ivan's work, did not have the right equipment, the appropriate equipment to do this. And uh, the skill set was not there, and so this this shows, you know, they, they're actually creating distance between the Ivan's narrative and, um, and what really happened. And I find that their document is far more, is far better argued and takes into consideration the actual scientific evidence that we have than the FBI's, you know, 90 or whatever page document against Ivan's. It's really a, a broadside against the FBI's case, whether consciously or not. And uh, so naturally, even though by this time Ivan's was dead, um, Ivan's former lawyer, Paul Kemp, says, well, <laughs> this just shows my client didn't do it, you know. And a lot of people are astonished. The uh, Department of Justice itself seems to kind of freak out. There's an internal conflict. There's supposedly shouting matches in the hall. Um, and the civil lawyers get told in no uncertain terms. They get scolded, according to the newspaper articles. And they get told to really back off and settle this case as quickly as possible out of court. Um, and so they do. And there's a certain amount of money involved. I don't remember one or two million dollars that the Stevens family gets with no admission of guilt from the U.S. government. So this is a fascinating example of a conflict that takes place within a United States department from contending groups. And it would, I mean, if a person really were to sort out what happened and who commanded whom, um, you know, they could quite possibly solve the case and figure out who, who were the perpetrators were. But if the, if the forensic evidence is, is the one side of, of the evidence, then the other side is the evidence that, uh, that leads us to conclude that there was a, a concerted, there was a, certainly a group of people who were working on putting forward that uh, the, 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 the terror, the fear, the propaganda uh, campaign that, as we indicated, stretched back into September before these attacks were even supposedly known by anyone. So uh, let's talk about that evidence, the evidence that points to the fact that there was a, a group of people who were, um, at least in ideological terms, on the side of the neocons who were in power in the Bush administration at that time. Uh, and tell us uh, what we can derive about the, the nature of this group and the way that they were acting. Uh, well, um, hard to know how best to get into this, but let's get into it by looking at the, uh, the attempt to get the Patriot Act passed, because that really is uh, one of the best ways in. Um, so, September 17th, I believe it is, John Ashcroft, head of the Department of Justice, says, we are going to be presenting, or I am going to be presenting to Congress very shortly, an anti-terrorism bill, which is very important for the security of Americans, and I'd like to see it passed by the end of the week. Um, so that basically, he's presenting, he ends up presenting this bill, which becomes known later as the Patriot Act, um, on a Wednesday, and wants Congress to approve it by Friday, you know, within a couple of days, which, you know, obviously he wouldn't have time to read it, study it, or anything. Um, so, right away, this is extremely fishy. This is not how bills get passed through Congress. And remember, it has to get passed both through the House of Representatives and the Senate. 
And the Senate in particular has this reputation of being, you know, sort of the group of wise elders that are supposed to take their time and, and pass their, through various committees, including, for example, the Senate Judicial Committee, which has to examine all uh, legislation that may have an impact on the civil rights of Americans. And Patrick Leahy was the chair of that committee. So here's Ashcroft. Now, the gist is this. From that day, September 17th, until October 26th, when the Patriot Act was signed into law, there was constant pressure from the, uh, what I call the executive branch of government, which includes not just the president and the vice president, but all these agencies, the Department of Justice, the Pentagon, um, the CIA, the FBI, you know, pressure, pressure, pressure on the legislative branch, on Congress, to pass this act. And so, for example, we have a whole bunch of these guys coming out of the woodwork on about September 30th. You know, you have Minister of, uh, the, uh, of Health, um, or at least <laughs> that's what he's called in Canada. I forget what he's called in the United States. Um, and we have Rumsfeld, Department of Defense, and we have all, about, about five of them come out and give these talks saying, you have to pass this thing quickly, this Patriot Act. And if you don't, something horrible is going to happen. And several of them say quite explicitly, we're worried about biological or chemical attacks. Now, you have to remember, nobody's gotten sick from anthrax at this point, September 30th. That's not going to happen for a few days. But the letters are, in fact, in circulation <clears throat> by this point. In fact, I have to correct what I said. There are people getting sick from cutaneous anthrax by this time at <clears throat> various news agencies, but nobody knows about it. It hasn't been diagnosed yet. So at the very moment the letters are circulating, people are starting to get sick. <clears throat> Nobody's supposed to know about it. These uh, folks in government are coming out and saying, you know, my gosh, you may be attacked with biological weapons soon if we don't pass the Patriot Act. And then this, this goes, you know, just, just step by step all until the time it's passed. We have, we have members of Congress being scared. They're told they're not supposed to identify themselves in public because it could be these WMD attacks. They shouldn't wear the congressional pins. They shouldn't use their congressional license plates. Um, there's barricades around Congress and tape and, you know, this crime scene tape and all kinds of stuff. And so, in other words, they're being constantly threatened and frightened. And then the FBI comes out and says, we've got this uh, very concrete warning, the most serious warning since 9-11. seem to remember this is October 11th, I may be wrong. And, and it looks like, my God, you know, there may be a terrible attack within the next couple of days that may involve you know, biological or chemical weapons. And so that evening, the Senate passes the Patriot Act. Now, this is a first draft of it. It has to be redrafted. Or, but that, that's a crucial date, right after the FBI warning. So, again, you, you, if you look at it closely, which I try to do in the book, it's very clear that there is a group of people in the executive branch of government that are coming out and trying to get that darn bill passed. And why are they trying so quickly, so hard? Sorry. Well, it's partly because we have evidence that, yes, people can be frightened into restricting their own civil rights, into committing civic self-immolation, um, and in going to war. They, this can be done. We know this. That's what the strategy of tension is all about. And in addition to these members of the executive branch, I begin to talk about neocons because this is a somewhat different issue, but it's related, and that is the, the very, very clear um, determination to frame the 9-11 event as an act of war and to say that the United States government must respond with war. Uh, you know, that's sufficiently important that I really devoted uh, a chapter to it. Because, you know, the 9-11 the attack, I mean, I was, I was working for the Center for Peace Studies uh, at McMaster University at the time, and we put out a statement, which, which I helped to draft, saying the 9-11 attack should be understood as a crime, not as an act of war. And this, it's very natural that it should have been understood as a crime. So this is campaign 
and it includes people of, from the executive branch of government, but a wide variety of other prominent neoconservatives who aren't working for government, writing in the newspapers and so on, starting on the day itself, 9-11, starting on CNN and so on, saying, this was an act of war. This must be understood as an act of war. Don't deal with this through legislation. Don't deal with this through law. This is not a crime. This is war. This is when we rain down destruction on people. This is when we destroy things. This is the America that must now come into being. This is the America that hit Hiroshima. This is the America that destroyed, you know, Berlin. That's what we want to see now. I mean, I, I'm not making this up. These, this is said quite explicitly in, by a wide variety of people in the newspapers and on TV in the wake of the 9-11 attacks. And what I try to show is that all the stuff that comes after that, not just the invasions, Afghanistan, Iraq, and then, of course, we have a whole series of other countries. It continues. It's now Syria. All of this depended upon defining the 9-11 attacks as an act of war. If they're an act of war, then the president is the commander-in-chief. He gets to have certain powers, um, and they use that. Uh, very consciously, when they set up these fraudulent tribunals to try people in the world on the war on terror, they used it in NSA, Patriot Act, that whole thing. All the restriction of American civil rights uh, that came after 9-11 depended upon this defining of the events as an act of war. And I'm quite sure this was planned. When you have all these people coming out singing the same tune, on 9-11 and in the days right after it, um, with very predictable results. So this, I think, you know, that's why I used, I very consciously used the word conspiracy in the title of the book. I understand uh, the, the way that people like you and me are called conspiracy theorists and how we're ridiculed for it. I understand that, but I don't think we should run away from that. I think we should say, you have to have a concept of conspiracy, hopefully a sophisticated concept, a concept because that's what this was. This was a plan made by a group of people in secret to commit illegal and immoral acts. That's what a conspiracy is. So let's call it what it is. So we have, in other words, executive branch but also a much wider group of neoconservative supporters who are acting in a particular way to create certain results in the fall of 2001 and later. Whether we call this a coup or whatever, it's certainly a, a real, uh, it's a blow to the civil rights of America. It's a blow to democracy. It's a, it's a blow to the legislative branch. And it, it helps to create what some people clearly want, which is a plutocracy, the rule of the wealthy in the United States in place of a democracy. And I'm afraid we've gone very far down that road now. I, I'm afraid that you're correct in that, and I'm afraid that we've also gone very far down the road in terms of our conversation. So in the interests of time, perhaps we will skip through the very interesting chapter that you have on the hijacker connection to mm -hmm. get to some of the, the implications of the conclusions uh, that, that we can draw from all of this evidence, which is that this seems to have been some sort of uh, failed or, or not not completely successful false flag event because the interesting part of this obviously the uh, the the conclusion that this book arrives at is is vastly different than that the FBI arrives at that this was the work of Dr. Bruce Ivins alone um, and from that we can obviously conclude that there there was a group of people that were involved in this that it was people who were into intimately connected with the uh, the apparatus of the US government and uh, and obviously advocating for the the policies being advocated by the the administration etc uh, but the the interesting part about this is that there were many. If this was intended, for example, to be blamed on Iraq, and if this were in, in, uh, intended to be used as uh, as justification for an invasion of Iraq, it was certainly a failure in that regard because the evidence didn't seem to line up. Ultimately, it it kind of collapsed. It it it, it came back to the point where this clearly originated from within the U.S. government's own 
own uh, bioweapons program, and the, the, eventually it had to devolve into the sort of lone nut uh, uh, scenario that the is, all, I think, the invariable fallback for these types of operations. So yes. it, it certainly did accomplish certain things, as we've talked about. It did further the the war mentality at the time. It did further the fear that and and amplify the fear from 9/11, and it did. Uh, result in the passage of the, the Patriot Act, or at least help in that passage. So it did have its successes, but it had its failures. What to what would you attribute those failures and the the inability, apparently, of these conspirators to plant the type of evidence that would have seen them succeed in those further aims? Well, I don't have a very good uh, specific answer to that. I can't do much better than what you've just said. That somehow, and I don't know why, but somehow the conspirators failed to get to maintain complete control over the investigation. And especially they failed quite early to gain complete control over the examination of the anthrax spores. Uh, I mean, they tried hard in the newspaper to come up with all kinds of propaganda about how well, these spores, you know, for example, were, were uh, weaponized with the addition of bentonite, it's kind of clay, and only Iraq uses bentonite. Oh, so it, you know, it's got the signature of Iraq. And in various other respects, they fought a hard battle through October and November to try and blame it on Iraq. But ultimately, they failed because there were scientists looking at this stuff who apparently were not bought out, who apparently were not brought in on the conspiracy. And this includes some people within the U.S. military and intelligence community. Uh, like the Armed Forces Institute of Pathology, which examined the spores and said, there's no, there's no bentonite here. Right? So I guess the lesson would be if you're going to try and pull one over on people, put one over on people, you better make sure you've got all, all your allies lined up because they, they didn't do it. They, they blew it that way quite, quite quickly. And uh, sorry, go ahead. I was just going to say, or get your hands on some bentonite and, uh, and make it appear. Right. Yeah. Right, exactly. Well, as you say, I guess we, we certainly don't have the answers to that because we don't have the answer as to being able to identify by name the, the people who perpetrated these attacks. But obviously, we have a pretty good comprehensive picture of the types of uh, people who would have been involved in this. And obviously, it's broadly along the lines of what I think many people in the 9-11 Truth Movement would have uh, would have su suspected and have probably argued all along. Um Again, I just want to stress that this book really does uh, cover all of the subjects that we just discussed and more in a, a great degree of detail in, in a remarkably concise manner. So uh, once again, my hat's off to you for being able to accomplish that. And I wanted to give you the chance to uh, direct people to the best place that they can uh, go to actually purchase this book, because I know obviously Amazon.com will have this in stock. But uh, if there is a more direct way uh, that people can purchase that, let them know. Thank you, James. Well, the most reliable way so far seems to be for people to go to the website of the publisher. It's Clarity Press. If you Google Clarity Press and you look on recent uh, books that have been published, you'll find the 2001 Anthrax Deception. Click on that and it has its own web page from which you can order. That's the best way to do it. Excellent. Well, that link will be in the show notes for this interview. Um, and so... There will be a direct way for people to purchase this book. I give my 100% wholehearted recommendation towards it. Uh, once again, my uh, my thanks to you for putting this together. I think it is the best slim companion that people can take uh, take in their pocket or anywhere they want uh, to to uh, guide them through this anthrax deception, as you term it. Uh, Gray McQueen, thank you again so much for your time today. Thank you, James. I hope we can talk again soon.